my love for Sister Dahlia Magahed is because of the work of ISPU. Looking at how do we create an environment where we can understand one another and understand the society that we live in and our society can understand the Muslim presence that is among them by creating opportunities for research, publications, workshops and trainings around the country, not only for the Muslim community, but for the private sector and for government to have a clear understanding of the values and principles and the statistics to back it up. With that, I bring you our beloved sister, Dr. Dalia Mugahe. First, I want to thank you for all, all of you for braving the rain on your Saturday evening to be here with us today to discuss such an important topic. Imam Jawari just talked about my my day job, which is I serve as the director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. That's a big, long name. So I'll explain what we do. We, we simply do research on the American Muslim community to inform decisions and dialogue about who we are with facts instead of fear. And I want to start with what inspires me to do this work because it has it may not seem connected, but it has everything to do with what we're all here to support, which is a shelter for Muslim women. What inspires me to do the work of research on our community is an ayah in the Quran that had always confused me, had always made me wonder, had even been unsettling for me as a young person, as a young woman. And it was an ayah that was describing an event during that would happen during the Day of Judgment. This cataclysmic, un, unimaginable event that we're all going to witness. And it simply said, it is the day when the infant girl who was buried will be asked for what crime she was killed. And I always wondered about this ayah because it made me, um, it made me ask why was she being questioned? She was the victim. She was the one that was buried. Shouldn't it be about her father facing questioning? And I realized one day that on this day, the day of judgment, the day of accountability, the day of justice, it will be those who were silenced that will be given a voice to speak to the King of Kings. They will be the ones we will hear from on that day. They will no longer be silenced. They will no longer be buried. And in a very small way, research is about giving people who don't get to be at the table a voice. If you do good research, 
you get to hear from the most vulnerable among us, and you get to give them their voice with policymakers, decision makers, influencers, the halls of power, they get to enter those halls through rigorous research. We get to bring those voices into a conversation that they would never have been invited to. So we do research on things like domestic violence in our community and on the challenges facing American Muslims, both men and women, on the harassment we face, on the difficulties we face, as well as our incredible strengths and contributions to our society. We get to do those, we get to do that work and we get to bring it to light. And I, I always think about the work of Sister Asma as really doing God's work because she is dealing with a topic that we are all very uncomfortable about. We're uncomfortable with this topic. It's not an easy topic to discuss. And I understand that because we are a community that is demonized, stereotyped, misunderstood, and one of the most prevalent misunderstandings and tropes attributed to our community is that we mistreat our women. So we have an understandable need to defend ourselves, to say, no, everything's fine, we're good. And then when some of us behave the way many others behave, when we are guilty of being human, we're feeling kind of uncomfortable about that. And so we've done research that looks at domestic violence, not just in the Muslim community. One thing I insisted on when I started at ISPU is we would do no research on our community that didn't have a comparison in other faith communities because we are not an isolated specimen to be examined, not within the context of our society. We are one community among many. So if we're going to study domestic violence in our community as we well should, among many other things, we need to ask the same questions of people in other communities. We need to have a comparison. Are we worse? Are we better? Are we the same? How do we compare? How do we understand our numbers? And so we did that. We did a rigorous scientific survey of American Muslims American Jews, Catholics, Protestants, and non-affiliated Americans, as well as just the general public of the American, you know, of American society. And we asked them the question, do you know someone personally who is the victim of domestic violence? Now we ask the question this way because it's a very sensitive question. You can't simply ask someone if they themselves are a victim. So you have to ask it where you give them, you know, a, a degree of separation. And what we found, brothers and sisters, is that the numbers are identical across faith communities, with only one faith as the exception, and that's the Jewish community where it's lower. And I did have a Jewish woman come up to me after a presentation and told me, the only reason that that number is lower in our community is because we're too ashamed to talk about it. So no one knows when it happens. 
she gave me a, she told me a name, a word in Hebrew that meant, you know, cover up what's happening in the house. Don't let it go out. And, and she says, this concept is something we hold very sacred. We don't talk about it. But outside of that, every community was the same. It was roughly 15% of respondents said that they knew someone personally. Now, what does that mean? It means Muslims in America are no better and no worse. This is a human problem. So we need to not feel any type of way about it. We, it's not, it doesn't mean we're, doesn't it's not a pathology for our community. It's not something inherent to our community because we're Muslims. We're no, we're no different. We're guilty of being human. And that can help us feel less defensive and less uncomfortable about actually addressing it because it's something everyone's dealing with. But where does our community stand out? And this is really important. It's not in the percentage of us who have the problem, but in the way we deal with it. And this might surprise you. In our community, we are the most likely to go to a religious leader or a leader in our community, of a community leader, to ask for help. In other faith communities, it is far less likely that people report going to a priest or a pastor for help. And that surprised me. Roughly half of people who, who are victims of this kind of violence are said to have gone to a, an imam or a, another community leader for help. And that number is only around 25 to 35% in other communities. Now, what does that mean? You know, it's a number. So as analysts, we have to interpret it. It means a couple things to me, the way I interpret this number. It means that in our community, we are more likely to expect support over stigma when this happens. We are more likely than people in other faiths to, to be supported than being chained. It also tells me something else that I think is equally important that we believe that these people who are victims believe this is wrong in the eyes of God. And therefore, if they go to a religious leader, they will find a sympathetic ear. And that may not be the case in all communities. And I think that those folks are absolutely right to make to have that expectation. It also means that our religious leaders have to be trained and equipped when someone comes to them. And they have to have a place for these women to go. They have to know where to send them. If their answer is, I'm really sorry, it's terrible this is happening to you, but I don't know what to say. I don't know where to send you. You know, maybe there's a shelter somewhere that, you know, that, that'll take you that, is, that does not share our culture or our, 
our community's norms around modesty, around diet, around all the things we need to maintain our dignity. I have a friend, a very close friend, who after gathering the courage to leave an incredibly abusive marriage, was homeless with her children. And when she finally got into a shelter, it was a non-Muslim shelter, that her, her experience was so hard that you know it was hard to sort of choose between the shelter and just being out in the street. And that's not a decision any of us should ever have to make. I was reflecting on this topic as I was driving, you know, it was raining, obviously, and um, I was thinking it's it's really hard to drive in the rain. Visibility's not good and it's kind of getting dark. And I was thinking, what if this is uh, this is my reality and I don't have a car. I don't have a home. I don't have some somewhere warm to go home to after this is all done. I'm not even heading to a shelter, uh, a sheltered place. Rain happens whether you have a home or not. I want to tell you a little bit about what we all face as Muslims in America, as men, as, as women. I'm going to focus on women because I want to paint a picture of the challenges and the strengths that we, that we are up against. So I'll start with what's, what's our, our assets, okay? Now, the American Muslim community, as you may all already know, is the most diverse community in America, in terms of a, a faith community. The only faith community with no majority race or ethnicity. Now, the plurality, which means the largest group, but it's not the majority, are people who identify as black or African American. And then the second largest are Asian, and then people identify as white, and about 14% identify as Arab, and then about 9% identify as Latino, and one to two percent of us are, are Native American, and then the rest are, are mixed race and, or other. So a huge mix of ethnicities, and backgrounds, languages, cultures. And we don't agree on everything. Actually, we're very split. We're very polarized on so many topics. I always am, am surprised by the fact that in, other, in a lot of other faith communities, there's sort of at least a slant to the right or to the left. There's some kind of homogeneity in their opinions about you know, the major divisive issues of the day. Name you know name it name a divisive issue. They'll they'll kind of all you know at least a, a large group of them will go one way or the other. Our community looks like the country as a whole. We're split straight in half on anything that is controversial. It's astounding to me, and it's a reflection of our diversity. But it, there is one thing that we agree on in very large percentages, as high as 85%. And that is simply this, that Islam is an important part of our daily life. 
we talk a lot about people who have become sort of secularized Muslims or you know, non-practicing Muslims, and of course they exist. But the vast majority of us still take this religion very, very seriously. It's something that we care about, and it's something that unites us. It's, it's almost like the only thing we agree on, is that Islam is valuable to our lives. But we also face a lot of challenges. And here's where I'm gonna focus a little bit more on women. Muslim women in America face many of the challenges, the same challenges as Muslim men, but a little bit more intense. A little bit more intense. We all face Islamophobic discrimination, right? 65% of us say that we have experienced some frequency of religious-based discrimination in the past year, regardless of who's in the White House, our, you know, what year it is. It's been like a very steady number over the past seven years. So we've switched administrations and, and it, it almost doesn't matter. It's on the ground, things are, don't kind of change at all. But Muslim women, are higher than that. So with the 65 is the average, but when you look at it by gender, it's, it's different. Where among women, it's closer to 75%. Muslim women are more likely to experience Islamophobic discrimination. The, they, they bear the brunt of Islamophobia. Muslim women are also more likely to feel unsafe, physically and you know, physically unsafe from a potential attack or, or an act of violence from a white supremacist group. And that, that was especially the case after the 2016 election results came out. We, almost, we had almost half of our Muslim women said that they were personally afraid for their safety. Muslim women are also, if they have children, and, and men too, this is not something that only impacts mothers, but when you have half of Muslim children, according to their parents, having, have, facing some, some frequency of bullying for their faith in school, that's another incredible source of stress. Anyone here who has a child knows that if something's happening to you, and it causes stress level number two, if it's happening to your child, it's gonna be stress level number 20. No one's gonna disagree with me. So if your child's being bullied, that is a hundred times harder on you than it is even on them. Right? Our families are also in a very interesting situation where we are doing a lot of us caring for parents and caring for children at the same time. It's called the sandwich generation. And we are twice as likely as the general public to be in this situation because of our demographic, because of our age. 35%, a third of us are taking care of elderly parents and everything else that goes with life. And for the first time, in most cases, in many cases, not, not in all cases, but in many cases, especially if 
those of us who immigrated to the United States, we're doing it completely on our own, without the village, without anyone helping. Unprecedented, and people wonder why we're tired. So now imagine you're dealing with all of these things. Many of us have these things in our lives. We understand these things and we can relate to them. But on top of all of that, you don't feel safe in your own home. It's the one place where you're supposed to have a sanctuary from all of these challenges around you. Your nervous system is dysregulated as its norm. You're vigilant. You jump at every sound. You're not sure what will happen next when you hear the garage door open. I, I, I have heard directly from people who say that until now, and it's been years, the sound of the garage door open makes them jump because of their experience where when their father came home and the garage door opened, they had no idea what to expect. Sometimes it was fine and sometimes it was not fine. And what we're all here to support, my sisters and brothers, is simply a safe place for us to shield our most vulnerable. I, I found this hadith and I was surprised I had never heard it before. This was, I, I found it in researching um, for this talk. I'm gonna read it to you because it's just, it, it's amazing. Mm. Abu Darda reported the messenger of Allah والسلام, said, listen to this, seek out the vulnerable among you. Mm. Verily, you are only given provision and support due to your support of the weak. SubhanAllah. <laughs> Seek out. It's not about respond when they ask. No, you go and you find them. They're too shy to ask. And it's completely self-serving. Right? Because we can only gain Allah's provision. If we want risk in our life, if we are undergoing some kind of hardship in our life, be it a health challenge, or a relationship challenge, or an issue with one of our children, Whatever it is, if you want relief, here's the prescription. It's simple. It's a simple prescription, my sisters and brothers. <coughs> Seek out the vulnerable. That's how you get Allah's support. That's how you get His provision. I was really struck, um, there's... We all know this ayah because it's on every wedding invitation. Right? Among his signs is this, that he created from your own self-spouses, that you may live with them in tranquility and put between you 
love and mercy. Indeed, this is a sign for those who reflect. Beautiful. No scripture has anything so romantic in it. Nothing. It's impossible. Rahman I want to draw our attention, though, to the first part that usually gets glossed over. We, we rush right to Mawadda and Rahman. And that is our spouses were created from the same source as us. We are created from the same essence, from the same self. And what does that mean? We're equally valuable. Our needs cannot be met mutually exclusively to the other person's needs. We cannot exist thinking, believing that the other person lives and, and, and breathes to serve us. That, that's just not what the A is saying. I mean, when you, when you hear, you know, I've discovered that it's always when I understand other ideologies that I understand my own faith more clearly, as if the Qur'an is responding to them. And other ideologies actually, we take it for granted unless we've, you know, come to Islam as adults or, or you know, converted, reverted, whatever word you, you, you prefer, embrace Islam as, as adults. Many of us grew up as Muslims, we take this for granted, the idea of a, of a common source for humanity, that we all come from one nafs, one, one, one source, this, this human equality built into scripture. And that means I can't be fully okay. I, my needs and the other person's needs have to be happening at the same time. That is what it means if we're from the same nafs. The next part, though, is so vital. What does this mean? So that you can have, right, taskunu comes from second. That's the root second. Second is the same root as a home. It's the same root as sakina. It's the root that means a safe, tranquil sanctuary. It's a place where you feel safe. It's the meaning of home. And it implies a shelter, a place, a physical boundary around which things might be hard, but inside there's comfort. There's only three places where this word is used in the Quran. One pertaining to your spouse, one pertaining to the home, and one pertaining to the night. And it means, if you take them all together, that the night in your home should be the safest place with you and your spouse. And when that is violated, it violates the very heart of the nature of marriage in our faith. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And the first thing that's mentioned in this wedding, you know, wedding card uh, invitation ayah that we all know is this idea of second. And second comes before 
mawadda and rahma. Why? Because if you're not safe in your home, you cannot even receive love. The mawadda, which which is a type of love, because it doesn't say hope, right? Mawadda is expressed love. It's not love you just have in your heart that's behind a, a wall. It's a love you are expressing. It's a type of love that is affectionate. That means you are, it's a verb. It's an act. But that doesn't happen if you don't have safety. That comes first. If you've ever been in a relationship where you didn't feel emotionally safe, let alone physically safe, are you able to let down your guard and receive love? No, impossible. Think of a friend, anyone. It doesn't have to be a romantic partner. If you feel like you're not really safe with them, that they're talking about you behind your back, that they're betraying you in all these different ways, and you're just not, you cannot receive love from them. Now, once that love, now, now second, and let us kunu being safe in a relationship is great, and it's definitely the foundation. And these three things are, these four things are actually a hierarchy. We have, we have a common source, and we are equally valuable. Our needs are equally important. That's the first. That's the foundation. Then we have safety, and tranquility. Then mawadda, and then rahma. It's like, it's like a hierarchy. Now, why is it a hierarchy? Because once you have this foundation of, of believing that you are equally valuable and that you have safety, that's not enough. You have, to, you have to deposit into that. You have to deposit acts of love. And when you've, you've given acts of love, then you can start withdrawing rahmah. Rahmah is what happens when you need forgiveness, when you mess up, right? That's when we need rahmah. And we all mess up. And we need grace. We need grace from each other. It's a lot easier to withdraw that and to have that given to us when we've established those three layers. And it's a beautiful and complete and perfect description of a healthy relationship. And when those foundations are, are broken, it can never work. It does not work. When you don't when you don't feel like the other person is equally valuable to you, when you look down on them, when they're a punching bag rather than another human being that you should care about their, their needs, and when there isn't second, when there isn't peace, then we are violating the very essence, the very foundation of our faith. And I think this, this idea has to be internalized and solidified in our minds. Because somewhere along the way, some of us have sort of let ourselves passively absorb an idea that maybe domestic violence isn't really against our faith. Maybe it's okay. Or maybe it just isn't as bad as people think it is. And nothing could be further from the truth. And I'll give you a very simple example. 
if this is something that was ever okay, then in the situation where Rasulullah had a rumor swirling around that his own wife had been unfaithful. This is when these things, a lot of times, these these are justified in the in the name of you know this idea of someone's jealous. Sometimes they're justified this way. And by the way, we justify things after we decide to do them, not the other way around. We we act impulsively, then we rationalize with, with some of these reasons. Now, if it was ever okay, then a rumor like that would have Rasulullah at least express some anger, even if he didn't behave violently, at least some anger, at least an angry conversation. How could you even put yourself in a situation where you're embarrassing me like this in front of my enemies? We have Abdullah ibn Salud talking about me. This man wants to bury me. Why are you doing this to me? Look at what you've done. I have to deal with this and I'm trying to save the world. Now I have to deal with this side issue and it's getting in the way of my mission. That's a very understandable conversation he could have had, but he didn't. That's not what he said. What he said instead is this. And I often say, sometimes you learn something about Rasulullah or right now is the season of his birth. And sometimes you, you learn one thing about him and you say, this is enough to believe he's a messenger. You don't have to tell me anything else. I, I just needed this one, this one thing. And this is, in my opinion, one of them. Because any other non-messenger of Allah would not have responded this way. Because what he did do, which proves all of these kinds of ideas about our faith wrong, is he went to Aisha and he said to her, if you are innocent, Allah will reveal your innocence. And it took some time, but he told her, if you are innocent, Allah will reveal your innocence. And if you are guilty, I will X, Y, Z, no. He could have threatened her, he could have done, he could have said so many, if you are guilty, no. He said, if you are guilty, then make tawbah and Allah will forgive you. That's the messenger of Allah. That's the man we are supposed to emulate. His concern was not even about himself. It was about her salvation. And that's in the case of entertaining the possibility. If you are guilty, this is what you should do. That's, that's the proper prophetic way to handle it. So don't tell me that there is any justification for hurting the person that you have promised to protect.